If I had to describe the sound of New York City in February, it would go something like this. Taxis driving through piles of slush at intersections. Snow shovels scraping at heavily salted sidewalks. And of course, no New York City winter would be complete without the swish, swish, swish of thousands of people walking around in puffer jackets. All over the world, puffy winter coats have conquered cities with cold climates, while also proving pretty great for legitimate outdoor activities. They're one of few garments favored by both hunters and runway models. And since every puffer coat basically looks the same, it's the most democratic outerwear option there is, right? Not exactly. Within a few decades of the very first puffer jacket, there were more options than you can count. Cheap puffers, camping puffers, luxury puffers, $1,000 puffers. Because yes, wearing a puffer jacket signals to the world that it is cold outside and your body likes to be warm. But somewhere along the way, these sleeping bags with sleeves also became a status symbol. This is The Court's Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira Bindrum. Today, puffer jackets, outerwear that's also an asset class. I am joined in the studio today by Alex Osla, who is membership editor here at Quartz, but the listener might recognize her name because she is also the producer of this very podcast. How does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone, Alex? Pretty weird, but I think I'll get used to it. <laughs> Any tips you would give yourself if you were sitting in the producer chair right now? Uh, I would probably say, just be yourself. You'll be great. <laughs> so I was thinking about my puffer on the way here, as one does while commuting, because it is kind of the most commodified version of the puffer jacket that you can think of when something is... Uh, less than $50 and available in black at Old Navy. It's, you've kind of hit the, the absolute <laughs> sure. uh, mainstream. But that's not how the puffer has always been. So I kind of want to go back. If the end game is the uh, quintessential Old Navy puffer, what is the beginning of that story? So maybe start by telling me when and where the very first puffer emerged in history. So this is in a fitting fashion, actually a little bit contested. I thought I had a very clear answer upon doing my research, which was that there was a gorgeous satin puffer by the famous women's wear designer Charles James, and that emerged in 1937. He called it the pneumatic coat. It's swirly. It is intended to go on top of a ball gown, so you know it's next level. And he used these sort of quilting techniques that he would have used on a duvet. And you can really tell it's like this swirly satin gem, this confection. I'm picturing like a smoker's jacket almost. It is it is kind of like that. Um, but it is filled with down and it is very beautiful. However, in doing more research, I found that there was arguably a puffer that was earlier than that, created by the chemist George Finch uh, in 1922. It was a coat, <laughs> so fitting, used to climb Everest. So unlike everybody else on his gentleman's, English gentleman's expedition to climb Everest in 1922, everyone else was wearing wool coats. He was wearing a coat filled with eiderdown. So sort of typical fashion or fitting fashion. The first puffers, it's contested whether it's for utility or for fashion. What I want is a coat that I can climb Everest in and then go to a cocktail party. Those those uh, do at the exist. Top of Everest. <laughs> those now exist, but 1922, I think you would be pushing it. So was this Everest coat the sort of breakout puffer? 
Definitely not. Uh, The first breakout puffer, I would argue, was made by Eddie Bauer in 1936. So Eddie Bauer was this outdoorsman. He also owned a modest clothing shop in Seattle, and he was on this fishing trip with a friend in the Olympic Peninsula. And they they got 100 pounds of fish, which is the most 1936 thing I've ever heard. And they were schlepping it up the side of a canyon, and they started to get really hot, uh, wearing their wool shirts and their wool coats. Eddie's friend went a bit ahead of him, and Eddie realized that he was taking breaks and feeling a bit sleepy. And it became kind of clear that he was having hypothermia uh, with this damp wool coat or insufficient wool coat. And so he came out of this experience being the sort of intrepid person that he was thinking, well, we can do better than that. So 1940, he gets a patent for what he called the blizzard proof jacket. It has this sort of quilted pattern on it. It looks quite modern, actually, when you see it, almost like a bomber jacket with like a crisscross diamond pattern, um, this kind of green color. So he gets this patent in 1940, but the really big break, I would say, for him is that a couple years later, he gets a contract from the Air Force to make these coats for Air Force pilots. So at this point, he calls it the Skyliner, because you have to, and it's supposed to keep pilots warm in the high altitudes when they're flying, because it gets real cold up there. There's so much I want to come back to there, but I, I feel like I need to ask you about technical specifications. What is a puffer made of? Does it have to be down Has that evolved over time? What is, yeah, give me the the technical specs. Okay, so I couldn't find a technical definition of a puffer coat, but I've come up with one. And it has three main qualities. Okay, one, it has an outer and an inner layer. And those can be made of a lot of different things. The outer layer in uh, the Eddie Bauer coat was made of high thread count cotton. Obviously, the other fashion coat was made of satin. These days, you would find polyester, nylon, some combination of the two. Gore-Tex, famously from Seinfeld. When did you get that? This week. It's Gore-Tex. You know about Gore-Tex? You like saying Gore-Tex, don't you? You could get that outer layer made of a lot of different things, but the inner layer is supposed to be a little bit insulating at least. So number two, those two layers in between them, you have some sort of filling intended to insulate. Traditionally, this was down, which is the feathers from a goose or a duck. There is now something called a responsible down standard if you're worried about the ethics of how the duck or goose feathers are found. Acquired. (laughs) Gathered. (laughs) We We don't want to go there. But now, of course, we have a lot more different kinds of fillings. We have synthetic fillings made from polyester, made from recycled plastic. And generally, with those kinds of things, the the puffier the coat, the warmer it is. And number three, quality of a puffer coat is you have to have some sort of stitching to keep the insulation in place because no one likes it when all the down is sort of gathered and bunched up in the bottom of the coat. That's a bummer. Okay, this makes sense. And you kind of touched on this, but just to double check, puffiness, a technical term we'll use here, is correlated with quality or warmth. Like if I'm seeing a very puffy coat, it's fair to assume that it's the warmest? It depends somewhat on what the filling is, but generally, yes, the puffier the coat, the warmer. There is a technical term and a formula for this called fill power. And if we want to get nerdy about it, how many cubic inches one ounce of down occupies with a standard weight resting on it? Say that one more time. How many How many cubic inches one ounce of down occupies with a standard weight resting upon it? Okay, so it's like density of the, the down, basically. Kind of, yeah. A.K.A. puffier, warmer. Can't say I've ever looked at the fill power of a puffer coat. I've... Why would anyone? Yeah. 
Well, I feel like I'm missing out now. Okay, so now I'm ready to jump back into to puffer coat history. <laughs> we have the Eddie Bauer jacket. How do we get from there to today where puffer coats are more or less ubiquitous? Mm-hmm. This is where it gets kind of interesting. So I would say the next milestone in puffer coat evolution is the 1973 Norma Kamali sleeping bag coat. It's definitely a conversation piece. For sure. And people come up to me like, that's some kind of coat you have. What kind of coat is that? Like, where did you get that coat? You would have seen this, even if you didn't know you were seeing it. Even today, people love this coat. It's worn by celebrities like Elton John and Cher. The doorman at Studio 54 wore it. Uh, Lady Gaga, Solange. Everyone's wearing the sleeping bag puffer. My favorite story is, though, it's like whenever you encounter another person in a sleeping bag coat, it's like Volkswagen owners, and you're like instant friends, and you've got something in common. It's the biggest sorority fraternity. And the origin story is also pretty interesting. Norma Kamali was designer living in New York. She got divorced. She went on a camping trip with her friend. It was August, but it was getting kind of cold at night, and she had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So she kind of draped her sleeping bag over her and went out into the woods to use the bathroom. And she's like, oh, this is pretty comfortable. I would like to wear this all of the time. And so she came back from that trip. And I think she cut up a sleeping bag or like stitched two coats together and did some sort of magic. And thus emerged the both stylish and extremely comfortable sleeping bag coat. And I want one. Describe it for me. It's like, very. is it what I'm picturing in my head, which is, if a sleeping bag were a coat? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it has sleeves, um, which is important. There are hooded versions. I think that the first one or the traditional one is kind of mid-calf length, but they make shorter ones now. They make vests. But they've been making essentially the same design for almost 50 years. So there's definitely something to it. Okay, so we've got designer puffers as one element that gets them into the mainstream. What else is going on? Okay, so fast forward another 20 years or so, we have the next big puffer milestone. We have the North Face Nupsy. You know this coat, even if you haven't seen it in a while, I guess. Uh, It's kind of like black on top. And then there's, I think, maybe the traditional one has like blue and they have black and they have all different colors now. When you sort of picture the platonic ideal of a puffer coat that's kind of waist length, this is probably something like what you picture. But what you might not remember is that this was a huge deal in terms of the beginnings of streetwear in the 90s. Um, it was a really big deal with rappers, and it sort of rippled out from there. Uh, it was seen in lots of music videos. I believe Biggie, in at least one song, uh, one song he calls his puffer coat his bubble goose in 1993. I used to have the trade deuce and the deuce deuce in my bubble goose. Now I got the Mac in my knapsack lounging black smoking And in 1999, a different song, he literally references North Face. So this is a big deal. This is the one with, like, the Michelin Man roles, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also feel like the 90s, we just had a very interesting relationship with proportion at that time. Like, all of our (laughs) clothes were either very, very large or very, very small. And the best outfit was some combination of very, very large and very, very small. So in that sense, like, it's a perfect moment for the puffer. (laughs) A very, very large proportionally out of, like, illogical coat to emerge. It's a good point. And I don't know if you know, Kira, but the 90s are back. And I actually read this, this fantastic, like, diatribe in the FT that's like, why does anyone wear a puffer? It just completely gets rid of your shape. It's just round. Who likes that? But 
who doesn't like that? There's something very freeing about it. Yeah, you for know, sure. When you're wearing like a wool coat, you're like, this is this an A-line? Does it accentuate? Mm-hmm. And with the puff, you're like, I'm a marshmallow today, and that's the state <laughs> of things. <laughs> yep, exactly. I find myself going through a mental montage of all the places that I've seen puffer coats now. Like I'm thinking of the Drake Hotline Bling video where that puffer was very highly memed. I truly don't know if I've ever seen Busta Rhymes not wearing a puffer coat. I feel like that's his default. What are other music videos where they show up? I want to go home and make like a YouTube playlist for myself. This is a highly incomplete list. But again, these started emerging kind of in the early 90s. Uh, One of the first music videos that I believe has puffers in it is Brandy's Baby video in 1994. She wears this bold two puffers. One is white and one is bubblegum pink. So that's 94, uh, 97, just three years later, we have the iconic Missy Elliott Super Duper Fly video. Uh, her puffer is black and very shiny and very puffed. And, you know, there there have been comparisons in the past to puffers being like trash bags, especially black ones. And this, I would say, is the most trash bag looking one. It's, it, she puffs it out like a lot. It's inflated, though, right? It's inflated. Yeah. But it said to the world, I can look like a marshmallow and make it fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And make it super duper fly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, two years later, 1999, DMX, What's My Name, Burgundy Puffer, very like a wine tone. It's very, very nice, very rich color. Yeah, but the, the 2015 Hotline Bling is everywhere. You can't not <laughs> see that. After the break, what your puffer says about you. I would say 30 years later, after some of the trends you're identifying, we're sort of seeing all of those same trends on steroids. We have streetwear, we have athleisure, we have hip hop driving fashion, uh, we have sort of accent pieces driving outfits, and puffers become this through line from fashion in the 70s and 80s and 90s all the way through to today. Who is making puffers today? What are the big brands in the in the quote unquote puffer realm? Is it the same companies, different companies? I mean, literally everyone. Like I, I couldn't identify a single clothing brand that doesn't make a puffer. Uh, which really says something, I think. But, you know, depending on your price range, um, you could buy, you know, a Moncler or a Canada Goose coat for $1,000 or upwards. The Prada puffer is also a very big deal in fashion circles. It's It has a belt, which is a, actually a very different silhouette than a lot of different puffers. Um, there is the 2016 ubiquitous Balenciaga A-line swing coat, which is uh, an interesting off-the-shoulder situation, which... Utility aside, was everywhere. When I hear you talk about all that puffer variety, as it were, it makes it's funny when something gets commoditized like that because it really forces you to think about the value of things. And puffer coats are so perfect because it is essentially like filled fabric that becomes a coat. What is the difference between these really expensive or luxury puffers and the sort of mainstream? Is there a big difference? What separates them? So on a certain level, the fill is probably different. You probably get ethically sourced down is probably much more expensive. But if you're just walking down the street, no one knows what's in your coat. And it is a very subtle difference. So people like to buy certain coats, often by name brands, because they say something about them. They're colorful. They like the fabric. uh, They are sort of assured that it's well made. And if you do buy a good puffer, it can last you a really long time. They're very hardy if you buy a well-made one. But in terms of signaling the value between a couple hundred bucks and many thousands, the markers are very, very subtle. And I think that's actually a pretty 
strong indicator of this movement towards minimalist luxury that really the little patches, the, maybe the color of the zipper, like these very small things on your coat show only other people who know about it that you are one of them. And this has always been appealing to people. They're, they're the people who want to wear like the Louis Vuitton logo all over them. And they're the people who just want to wear something that they know is high quality, that is a much more subtle indicator of wealth. So I think it very neatly falls into that category because, of course, at the end of the day, it has to keep you warm. Do you remember in middle school, elementary school, when kids would wear their winter jackets, but they would keep the ski tags on them to show that they had like <laughs> gone to the ski resort oh that God. weekend and then they'd have like seven ski tags. It's like, I get it. You go skiing. No one's that. <laughs> That's what you're making me think of. There's just these little things that are signifiers. Wow. I have not thought about that for a <laughs> long time. Um, in the course of my research, I was <laughs> I was looking up, what do they recommend you wear f- to climb Everest now? <laughs> you were looking that up for personal? I am, let us be clear, I will very unlikely climb Everest in my lifetime. Because you don't have the perfect coat. I mean, <laughs> not yet. Save it up. Um, but the down coat they recommend is between four and $600. Uh, yeah, pricey, but you're literally climbing Everest. So, True. you yes. know, you Your can splurge. coat should be a... <laughs> but you, you can very, very easily find coats that are much more expensive than that now and probably don't keep you half as warm. What other things come to mind in that realm where it is a commodity effectively, you can get cheap versions, there is some element of utility, you do need this thing, but there's also a ton of signaling and a real uh, stratification of, you know, luxury to cheap. Hmm. I think sunglasses is probably a good one. I have no idea what expensive sunglasses look like, but presumably people do. I think headphones is a little bit like that. Yeah. But I think it's a little more obvious, though, because it has more obvious branding. Like, oh, are those Beats over your headphones or Bose over your headphones? Like, I know something about you because of what you choose. I can't really imagine a world in which we're not using our clothes to do some sort of signaling. It seems like a very human instinct. So what I I want to imagine, then, is that what we are signaling is the thing that evolves over time. And I'm curious if you could see that happening, where today it is very often wealth or status, um, but could it become sustainability or support of Black-owned businesses? Or do we hit a space where we're actually embracing everything being the same? How do you see that maybe evolving? It could be a little bit of all of those things. I think it will be somewhat culturally specific. Like in Asia, there's a lot more emphasis on fitting in. And in the West, I would say you often could use something like a puffer to stand out, right? A brightly colored puffer says more than you would ever need to say. But something like ethical sourcing and, you know, Black-owned businesses, I, it would be interesting. I don't really see those trends super clearly yet, but I would be very happy to see them emerge. Where do you see the puffer coat in, let's say, 50 years? You know, I think there's a chance it could be pretty much where it is right now. Like, it's been 50 years since the sleeping bag coat. So that's still a really hot item. It's still kind of timeless. And maybe in... 2072, we'll be like, oh, man, the sleeping bag coats, I still really want one. To wear the one day a year when the temperature (laughs) is still below 40. (laughs) Oh, grim. (laughs) On that note, how do you, what is your framework for puffer purchases? How would you suggest a potential puffer owner think about that purchase? Okay. I've thought about this a lot. 
There are no good and bad puffers. They're only puffers that are the right fit for your environment. So if you live in Miami, maybe you don't buy a Canada goose coat for like your one trip to Pennsylvania. Like think about what your actual needs are. You should be able to move. You really do need to try it on because if if it's overfilled or uh, the wrong fabric and it's too swishy or like, I don't know, different things, you kind of feel like a kid bundled up to... Yeah, like T-Rex arms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like even in that that sort of 1937 Charles James puffer, he talked about how he had to take some of the down out on the shoulders and the neck to like allow the wearer to move. So you should definitely make sure that that is the case in your 2022 puffer that you purchase. And maybe waterproof. Again, depends what you're using it for. No one likes a damp puffer. It's interesting that on the reverse, like anyone who maybe goes to a beach once a year is allowed to own five bathing suits, but you can only own one puffer. No matter. It's how. just the amount of space it takes. That's up. true. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, I have one more question for you. What is your favorite puffer coat fun fact? If you and I were stranded in the wilderness, like Eddie Bauer, with nothing to amuse us except your deep knowledge of puffer coats and our memories, what fun fact would you use to distract me? So it's 2014. There's this Icelandic company that collects ethical eider down from the nests of eider ducks. And they receive this weirdly big order from this Russian company. They piece it together eventually, and it turns out that this was very likely the filling for a handmade coat for Vladimir Putin. So the Russian media said this coat, uh, which if you look at it, it's not super remarkable. It's dark. It's puffy. (laughs) It has a hood. Um, They said it cost about $11,000. But according to one article I read, just the down alone would have cost an upper range of close to 30,000 US dollars. So they might have underestimated how much that puffer cost. He got a discount, I guess, on his uh, down. I mean, $11,000 is nothing to shake a stick at. Like, that's an expensive puffer, even if you're the president of Russia. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have a puffer as part of your look. (laughs) It's either puffer or shirtless. (laughs) That's why he needs the puffer, because there's nothing underneath. (laughs) Probably keeps him really warm. Eider Down is highly coveted for its warmth. Oh, you're so right. He, like, comes off the horse and he's freezing because he hasn't worn a shirt in three hours. And he's like, I need my coat. Bring me my puffer. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. That's our obsession for the week. This episode was produced by Katie Jean Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake. And our executive producer and guest today is Alex Osula. The theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sukira. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Go for a walk in your puffers together and listen. Then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. <laughs> <laughs>